something I think about a lot, and I I don't know if I'm unique in this or not, but something I think about a lot is when people come on a big mountain trip, um, you know, it's never about the mountain, right? A through hike is rarely about a through hike, right? Um, and I think the sooner, as a trip leader, I can look at people and say, um, what is it that you're hoping to get out of this experience? Like, what does this really mean to you? Why are you here? The sooner you can evaluate that, the sooner you can help um, start crafting an experience that might help them meet those goals. Right. So for some people, that might be, um, you know, a big physical challenge in the same way that running a marathon, climbing a mountain, doing a triathlon would be a big physical challenge. Right. Um, For some people, it's a way to connect with a friend or a significant other or a college buddy. Right. Um, For some people, they want to be reminded that there's something bigger than they are in the world. For some people, it's honoring a loved one who might have passed recently, right? I get a fair number of people who say, this is my climb to honor my my dad who passed away or, um, you know, and and there is something really healing about carrying a little film canister of ashes up to the summit and letting it go and having this physical and mental culmination and then a, a physical release. That was Charlotte Austin, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 137. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, that's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm super thrilled that you're listening in today, and I want to take a minute right here at the top to share some gratitude and then to share an exciting update. So first, seriously, thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for valuing honest conversations. Thanks for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's hugely important. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking a minute or two to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. That's such a huge help in spreading the word and in helping new people find us. So thank you so much for doing that. The show currently has 233 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I would love to get to 500 by the end of the year. So thank you for helping with that if you have a minute to jump on and leave a rating or review. And more than anything, thanks so much for supporting and funding this show on Patreon. Together, we've built a truly community-funded podcast with no ads or corporate sponsorship, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, which I'm really excited about. So in a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to today's wonderful guest. But first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to just quickly explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing— telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers. And I can't give you a miraculous 10-day six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, honestly, I'm so over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, money, sex, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that we often use adult language, so fair warning on that, but we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when that's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, like I said, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. 
These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. And now for that quick update that I said that I'm excited to share. Over on Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and it'll hopefully continue to grow over time as the community grows and obviously then the funding grows with it. But higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities who are generously spending a few hours of their time with me, a white straight cis woman, to share their lives and stories with our majority white audience. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work that they do, especially creative work, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. And believe me, it's not. So just know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. It's a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh man, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. (laughs) Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, a different organization each season. Uh, Past organizations include Black Lives Matter and the Venture Out Project, so you can feel awesome about that aspect of your contribution as well. When you head over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels that you can choose from, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Charlotte Austin. Charlotte is a writer, editor, and mountain guide living in Seattle, Washington. When she's not writing, Charlotte works for International Mountain Guides, where she leads climbing, mountaineering, and hiking expeditions around the world. She's guided in North and South America, Europe, Alaska, Patagonia, and Nepal. She's a wilderness EMT, a Leave No Trace trainer, and she holds a Level 2 certification with the American Institute for Avalanche Education and Training. Charlotte's work has included a feature story about why there aren't more women in alpinism, a study of how understanding the science of gender can be a helpful tool in the mountains, and an essay about how debriefing after hard experiences could ultimately save your life. 
In this episode, Charlotte tells the story of how she became both a writer and a mountain guide. We talk about everything from imposter syndrome and courage to fear, risk, discomfort, and being a female in a male-dominated industry. Charlotte shares openly and honestly about the sacrifices that she's made to live an adventurous and a more unconventional life, and about the dangers of romanticizing everything you see on Instagram. We talk about her daily writing routine, her advice for new and aspiring writers, and what she's learned from pushing herself to do hard things again and again over the years. I absolutely love Charlotte's work, and it was a total blast to have this conversation with her. I hope that you love it just as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Charlotte, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's like a dream come true. I'm so excited to have you on. I woke up this morning and I was like, it's Charlotte Austin Day. My husband's like, I know, we got it. (laughs) Wow. Um, to, to take me that seriously, that'd be great. <laughs> know, right? Um, tell me something that you're learning this year, maybe a skill that you're working to improve or just something that you're actively trying to get better at in 2018. Ooh, I am working so hard. This is like right at the top of my consciousness. Um, I'm working so hard, um, to learn how to manage my body in athletic recovery. Um, I, I went really hard in my twenties climbing and, Um, I did a lot of skiing, a lot of hiking, a lot of mountaineering, um, running. I was a high school and collegiate athlete and I was so used to just sort of, um, taking good care of my body to the best of my ability, but kind of being able to do whatever I wanted on a big day and then being fine the next day. Um, and honest to God, Nicole, the day I turned 30, my body was like, uh, and so I, I had some like foot stuff crap up. I've been like getting the second and third day muscle soreness. And so it's, um, I almost wish I had a more intellectual answer for you, but I'm, I think I'm the last person in the entire world to get on the foam rolling train. Um, and I'm starting to take, uh, all my like, you know, muscle supplements and I'm doing more stretching. And so it's, um, I'm spending a lot of time reading and reflecting and seeking out information about how to manage, um, help my body recover from the things I ask it to do. Yeah, no, I, I love that answer. I know that you and I both have other athletic friends too. And just hearing about, you know, pro runner friends, how much time they spend on recovery, even versus how much time they spend training. It's like, once you hear it, it's, oh, well, duh, of course you need to spend a lot of time on recovery, but the people who really prioritize that type of stuff, you know, makes, I've heard makes a huge difference. So it makes complete sense that the same would be true for you in your sports. Yeah. And it's so interesting that I, I feel like I'm really actively an autodidact in that realm. Like I'm really trying to self-educate and I, I'm having a really hard time figuring out what is, um, sort of like witchcraft and what is placebo effect and what is real and what, um, you know, what I should actually be doing. Like if I go to a physical therapist and say, what are the five things I should be doing to recover after I guide Mount Rainier? Right. Um, so I guided a summit climb of Mount Rainier, um, three days ago, um, which was wonderful. And it was the summit day was a probably like an 18 or 19 hour day on my feet. And honestly, five years ago, that would have been like, I would have gotten off the mountain and eaten 5,000 calories, gone to bed, slept for 12 hours and been fine the next day. Um, and now like my muscles are okay, but all my joints are a little bit creaky and my tendons are kind of like puffy and weird feeling. And, um, so it's, it's very much on my mind right now. And I, I actually just read an outside magazine that there, there are now classes like in New York, the swanky fitness scenes, there are classes that are like recovery classes. You go and it's like foam rolling and cryotherapy and, um, you know, you stand on your head and let all the blood drain from your toes. And it's, 
man, I just want somebody to tell me what to do and what's which science. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, Because everyone has their own advice, and their own opinions. Have you found one or two things? I mean, you mentioned foam rolling, but that you feel like are working for you so far? Um, oh man, self-massage has been big. Um, you know, whether that's foam rolling or a golf ball on my feet or just, I spent like an hour yesterday with my thumbs and my Achilles tendon trying to like get all that edema out of my legs. Um, so that's been a big one for me. Um, drinking, I drink a ton of water. I, (laughs) it's becoming my trademark. This is so funny. So you know how, um, hydro flask, do you know what hydro flask is? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So they make, um, what is essentially a growler. It's like a 64 ounce insulated water bottle. So I took what is the growler and put the flip up sippy lid on it. And I carry it around, um, as my water bottle. And I mean, so it's, it's huge, right? Um, it looks like I'm carrying around like a milk jug as my water bottle. And (laughs) first they laugh, then they copy because everybody in my life made fun of it at first. And then gradually I've seen like my dad bought one and is now using it as a water bottle. And like three or four of my best friends are now using it as water bottles. So, um, really pushing hydration has been really big for my recovery. Too. Yeah. I mean, that all makes complete sense. Uh, when you were talking about self-massage l- last summer, uh, or no, last summer, last fall, I hiked the Arizona trail and my, like, l- I guess like luxury item that I let myself bring was a small massage ball and like one of those like pressure point things. And it was so helpful just to be able to like be in my tent at night and like dig into my glutes or the bottoms of my feet or whatever, just having that small ball. I used it way more even than I thought I was going to. Oh, that sounds lovely. <laughs> And painful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also terrible. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I've been carrying um, something called a tiger tail. It's a, it's essentially a foam roller, but instead of putting it on the floor and rolling on top of it, it's a, it's a much smaller diameter foam um, tube with handles. And so you use it, you like put your, you know, hold it in your hands. It's like a rolling pin basically. And they make a travel one that's really small, but incredibly useful. And so I've actually, when I guide internationally, I st- I've started taking it and that's, that's my um, my luxury item and I bring it out and, you know, my, all of my clients immediately start using it. So. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to look that up. That will be in the show notes for sure. Um, (laughs) this might be a strange pivot, but here's where I would love to start. I would love for you to tell me about the time that you were a writer in residence on a ranch in Wyoming. What was that experience like? What does that even mean for people who don't know? (laughs) Yeah. So maybe the big picture. Um, so I work roughly half the year and this fluxes a little bit from year to year, but I work roughly half the year as an international mountain guide. Um, so I'm in the field traveling, whether that's, um, Mount Rainier, the Cascades or internationally. So, um, South America, Mexico, the Himalaya, um, Asia. So I'm half of my year is super physical, super extroverted, um, super outdoors. Right. And then the other half of the year, roughly six months, which again, fluxes, um, I spend writing. And so I write for, um, outdoor adventure travel magazines. I've been in a bunch of anthologies. I'm currently working on a book, which is really exciting. Um, and I, um, I applied to be a writer in residence at this ranch in Wyoming. It's called Gentel, um, because I wanted a month of, um, you know, what, what greater luxury in the entire world could there be than a month to wake up, eat your breakfast, go write all day, you know, come back, eat dinner and go to sleep. That just sounded like the ultimate luxury to me. Um, and so there are many of these writer or artist in residence programs around the world. Most of them are nonprofits. Um, and they're, I recommend them a ton to new writers and artists. I think it's a really cool, um, just way to prioritize your work and to demonstrate to your community that you're prioritizing your work, you know? Um, and, and also what an incredible gift of time, right? 
Yeah. So this particular one called Gentel is, it's a nonprofit. Um, and it was started by a woman named Nelchi. Um, so Gentel, the name of it is actually just a rearranging of the letters in her name. And she's heiress to the Doubleday Publishing Fortune, um, the big, you know, publishing house in New York. And so she started, um, she's in her gosh, eighties or nineties now. And she started this residency as in her direct words, um, the artist community she wished she had had when she was becoming an artist. So she was a, um, she's a large scale painter. She does these incredible, huge works of art that are, you know, maybe 10 feet tall by 30 feet wide, something like that. Um, and so she took her inherited fortune and built this like haven for, for writers. It's just incredible writers and artists. And so it's a house in Sheridan, Wyoming. So the Northern part of the state, and it's this house and everybody who comes, um, there are six people a month. So two writers and four visual artists come, um, each month. And so the, the six of us lived in this house where you have a beautiful bedroom and an ensuite bathroom. Um, and then you, uh, you're on, um, a thousand acres, this ranch in Wyoming, and you get up every morning and you do just that. You eat your breakfast and you walk to your studio, which for me was this little wood cabin about a hundred feet away from the main house. Um, and you get to write for the day. It's just magical. So this is like my wet dream that you're describing. I, know. <laughs> I mean, really it is. And it's, um, I just think it's such an incredible, you know, we get to have dinner with Nelji, who was this like sort of, you know, storied figure in our minds. And, um, and the application, I, I'm not positive that this is true, but my understanding is that the application is 100% the writing sample. There's no resume. There's no, none of that. It's just the writing sample. Um, and of course they get hundreds and hundreds of applications and, um, you know, just the, the gift of having somebody say, we believe in you enough to give you the gift of time and space to create whatever you think is important to add to the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't think of a better gift to give anyone. Yeah, so. that's incredible. That's, I think that's on my bucket list. So <laughs> that sounds amazing. You even think about, you know, to have somebody say that to you. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So obviously you mentioned your work as a mountain guide, and I would love to start to mm-hmm. dig into that. Um, can you tell me the origin story of how you got into that work? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Um, it's one of those stories that I have a lot of different true answers to, if that makes sense. Um, I, I realize I have different versions of that story that I tell different people. And so I'm, I, I noticed that about myself and I'm trying to like find the truest one. Um, and so the broad strokes go something like this. I, um, I got a bachelor's in environmental studies from the university of Washington. Um, and so I transferred to the university of Washington halfway through college, um, I started at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and I transferred back to the University of Washington to finish my degree. And so when I transferred in um, partway through college, I, I essentially came into this huge new state university with no friends, um, really not much of a support system. And I gravitated towards these outdoor classes because I felt like people were sort of the most real outside. Um, I was interested in writing and communications and all these other subjects, but I just didn't feel like I found my people there. And so I started taking classes in the environmental science department and it was, I was like, Oh, these are, these are my, my people. And so that really resonated. Um, but as I approached graduation from college, um, I realized that my education had given me an incredible breadth, but functionally zero depth in any subject I took. Um, it was right at the beginning of when colleges were sort of offering these eco-friendly degrees, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had taken classes in like environmental philosophy and environmental design and, um, you know, 
GPS tracking for, you know, ecosystem modeling and environmental history. And so really my only reasonable career options that that, that had sort of set me up for on paper were um, like EPA type stuff or um, water sampling for, you know, city health, things like that. And it just wasn't, didn't feel like it played to my skill set. So I thought pretty seriously about law school. Um, that seemed, being an environmental lawyer seemed like it would line up with my my interests. Um, but I <laughs> I went and I shadowed a couple of environmental lawyers and I immediately was like, <laughs> pumped the brakes. I just didn't think I could do it. Um, and so I was accepted into a master's of fine arts program in creative nonfiction writing in Alaska. And that was a low residency program. Um, so you go up once a year and take intensive classes and then work the rest of the year remotely with a mentor. So there I was like <laughs> bright eyed and bushy tailed, um, you know, having enrolled in this degree that was, you know, essentially guaranteed to not increase my earning ability. Right. <laughs> um, and I needed a job that I could, uh, sort of fit in the cracks around this master's program. And so I started, um, looking at my skill sets and I got a job as the desk girl at a local guide company. Like I was the one who was filling out people's expense reports and answering the phone and stuffing envelopes. And it took me about a hot second to realize that I was on the wrong side of that desk. <laughs> that I wanted to be the one out doing interesting things. So um, I moved into sort of an apprentice role as a mountain guide. You start, um, it's primarily a trade that's taught through mentorship um, and feedback and, and just time. So I was an apprentice for a long time and then I moved up and became an assistant guide, did that for years. And then, um, you start leading trips, which is a, it sounds like a linear progression, but man, when you <laughs> first step onto a mountain and say, I think I can get 12 people safely up and down this, you know, that's a, you sort of like take a deep breath and shit yourself a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I can't uh, even imagine what that would do. You, so what was the first expedition that you led? Um, yeah. So the company I work with, it's called International Mountain Guides. And we are based at the, um, in a town called Ashford, which is at the base of Mount Rainier. And Mount Rainier is an incredible mountain um, to sort of have as your home turf because there's a huge demand to climb it. So you climb it dozens and dozens of times, first as an apprentice, then as an assistant, and then you start leading it. And so that's where I started to lead. Um, and you lead climbs there. And then um, eventually you start leading uh, international trips, right? You lead Himalayan expeditions and South American trips and Machu Picchu treks. And so um, in some ways it's almost easier to lead international trips because there aren't quite as many people breathing down your neck. Um, but it's a, it's a great place to learn to start on Rainier because you have so much support. So, yeah. So when you were starting to lead trips, um, I'm curious about kind of the psychology of stepping into that new bigger role, especially as it relates to handling imposter syndrome. Ooh, I still get imposter syndrome. <laughs> I do. And I think, um, actually, I don't know if I get imposter syndrome anymore. I, I never underestimate the magnitude of the task I'm setting out to do. I think maybe is more, um, more apt these days. I, I certainly felt imposter syndrome for years. And one of the ways I felt that most is in my self-presentation. Um, and this may sound crazy, but when I started working at IMG, International Mountain Guides, um, I was one of a very few women. And I didn't see people, I saw a couple people sort of above me on the ladder, but I noticed that the higher, with each rung up the ladder, there were fewer women. 
um, in the industry. And so I, one of the things that I did pretty aggressively at the beginning of my guiding career was manage my self-presentation. So I would not show up to meet clients wearing any makeup. I was really careful about, um, I never wore nail polish to meet clients. I never, um, wore jewelry. I would be really careful to look and act the way I thought a mountain guide was supposed to look and act. Um, because I would look to my left and right and they would be these like bearded, tall, broad shouldered, you know, handsome chiseled dudes all living out of their Toyota Tacomas <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> wearing like the trucker's hat and the button up shirt and the car hearts and the, you know, um, and man, Nicole, it's like only in the last couple of years that I've been able to show up and meet my clients and say, actually, this is what a mountain guide looks like, you know, and maybe my nails are painted because I had a week off and that was fun. And that's, um, and that's okay. That's what a mountain guide looks like right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that, I mean, that was definitely something else that was on my mind to ask you about. I mean, like the, the experience of being blonde and beautiful and a woman in this industry, like that, even what you were speaking to about feeling like you needed to tone that down. Do you feel like that was messaging that you got from somewhere or was this, was this just you reacting to sort of the stigmas and stereotypes of being a woman in the outdoor industry? Um, man, first of all, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> um, you know, I think there, there are some lines and I, um, you know, I don't take lightly that, you know, so some self-presentation, I think you do have obligations to project the, the messages you, um, want, you know, I, I think you do have to take some ownership over the message you're presenting. You know, I would never show up, um, you know, in a low cut shirt to guide eight men, for example. Like, I think I do have to own that messaging, um, that said, I think being less afraid of um, obvious femininity um, and self-expression has been really liberating. Do you feel like the, the turning point in you feeling more comfortable with that is just due to like the experience in your resume now as a guide? In large part, yes. I mean, I think when I was a you know 24, 25, 26-year-old woman, you know, and our clients are primarily, um, they're typically super type A. They're typically very successful financially and in other, you know, by any other matrix. So they're, um, you know, they're, and they're in their forties and fifties and sixties. Often they're people who have, you know, who are able to spend thousands of dollars on gear and equipment and trips, um, and who have chosen these big, bold goals. Right. And so for me to show up and say to people who are two or sometimes three times my age, you know, to say, um, I am your mountain guide and you need to trust me as much as you trust this, the guy you see walking across the parking lot, who's six, four and has a hundred pounds on me. You know, um, I think I was really careful about my self presentation. You know, if I showed up wearing a short pink skirt and a tank top, it was a different message than if I showed up wearing like, you know, jeans and a company Mm t-shirt. Right. Um, and so I am still careful about that, which I, I think is not unreasonable, (laughs) you know? Um, I think, you know, people are employing my services professionally and I have an obligation to show that, um, I take it seriously, but I, I'm no longer afraid of like wearing my hair down when right. I meet people, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, so. totally. I mean, it's, yeah, it's fine in the line between the choices that you're making just from a professionalism standpoint versus the choices that maybe you previously would have made to, like you say, downplay obvious signs of femininity or right to try to like dim that part of your identity that both can be true. You can be professional and you can be experienced and great at what you do. And also, you know, you can have your hair down. <laughs> yeah. And, and also clearly a woman, you know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, and a lot of that has come with my resume. You know, the first time you show up to lead a, a Himalayan expedition and people see you, you know, you're, you're stacking the odds in your favor to have everybody believe, including yourself, that you can pull it off, you know, but when it's your 10th one, um, and you can say, yes, we've summited this mountain five times, you know, out of the last five trips, like, you know, I'm going to wear my hair down. That's I'm comfortable with that now. Have so. you ever had direct pushback from, you know, maybe men that were on tracks or people that didn't believe in your skills or didn't feel the same kind of confidence just based on a gender issue? Um, the short answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is, I think in a lot of ways, guiding is um, certainly there is sexism in the outdoor industry. But in my little corner of it, I've actually been really lucky in that you know, if somebody sasses you in the Alpine, um, <laughs> I don't mean to sound, sound glib, but I mean, honestly, you just walk faster. If somebody's roped to you and they're giving you sass, um, you can just ease up on the pace until they're vomiting their lungs out. And you're like, Oh, bummer. <laughs> I, I sound like such a jerk saying that, but, um, you know, one of the beautiful things is that the mountains just don't care what kind of bullshit you bring. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so certainly I've had pushback. Um, the large majority of clients, both men and women have been really incredible. Um, there are notable exceptions and those notable exceptions, um, you know, in the Alpine, you're sort of allowed to address them more directly than you might in a boardroom or a classroom or. Yeah. I mean, obviously I would assume that blunt communication when there's so much at stake is necessary. Yeah. I actually just, two days ago, I was giving feedback to some younger guides I was working with. And I was saying, um, you know, one of the incredible and unique things about guiding is you're allowed to be, um, really direct, just like you said, you know, you can be, um, respectful and kind, but you don't have to be nice. And that's kind of mind blowing. So what do you think makes you different from other people in your position, like other guides, like what's your superpower, so to speak? Ooh, um, that's a great question. Uh, man, I, wow. <laughs> I'm gonna have to think about that one. Um, something I think about a lot and I, I don't know if I'm unique in this or not, but something I think about a lot is when people come on a big mountain trip, um, you know, it's never about the mountain, right? A through hike is rarely about a through hike. Right. Um, and I think the sooner as a trip leader, I can look at people and say, um, what is it that you're hoping to get out of this experience? Like, what does this really mean to you? Why are you here? The sooner you can evaluate that, the sooner you can help, um, start crafting an experience that might help them meet those goals. Right. So for some people that might be, um, you know, a big physical challenge in the same way that running a marathon, climbing a mountain, doing a triathlon would be a big physical challenge. Right. Um, for some people, it's a way to connect with a friend or a significant other or a college buddy, right? Um, for some people, they want to be reminded that there's something bigger than they are in the world. For some people, it's honoring a loved one who might have passed recently, right? I get a fair number of people who say, this is my climb to honor my my dad who passed away or, um, you know, and and there is something really healing about carrying a little film canister of ashes up to the summit and letting it go and having this physical and mental culmination and then a, a physical release, I think. So, mm -hmm. so I think, um, I certainly guide with people who are stronger than I am. And I certainly guide with people who are, have more experience, but I think, um, I do spend a lot of time 
you know, sort of watching the people around me and thinking, why are you really here? And how can I help you lean into the journey that will give you the answers you want? Yeah, sort of that deeper level of empathy and emotional intelligence. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's, yeah. So it's interesting, and I, I mean, I totally agree with you about this idea that the mountain's not about the mountain, the through hike's not about the through hike. So, and I'm sure, you know, maybe this has changed for you throughout your career and your experiences, but when it comes to climbing mountains, to doing treks like this, what is it to you? Like, what's the deeper part for you? Ooh, oh man. The, I think the most direct answer I have is that I really like how honest people are when they're outside. <laughs> There's just so little bullshit. Um and I, the example I use in both when I teach writing and also in guiding is, um, you know, in our day-to-day lives, we lie to each other and ourselves all the time, right? How are you? I'm fine. Like, bullshit, you're fine, <laughs> right? Nobody's ever fine, right? You're hungry or you're scared or you're distracted but trying to pretend you're present or you're secretly on Instagram or whatever. Um, like, it's a revolutionary act to tell the truth in a way that's respectful and kind. Um, and I, I just love that we get to live that in the mountains, you know, in the way we talk to and interact with our bodies, the way we talk to and interact with ourselves, you know, with each other. I think that's, um, really pretty mind blowing. I think that's so well said. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So you mentioned before the type of people that, um, you know, these trucks that you lead usually attract being type A, being goal oriented, obviously being of a certain privilege level to, like you say, have the funds and the time, you know, to be able to spend time and money on adventures like this. What's it like for you to be the one who takes these people and puts them in such uncomfortable situations? Ooh, um, (laughs) that's an incredibly perceptive uh, question, actually. I think that's really, um, I think that's fascinating. You know, I, um, I mean, the first element of that that I think about all the time is, you know, just what I just said, that it's, for most of these people, it is revolutionary to be told the truth, right? I mean, how many CEOs are used to being told something like, I'm sorry, but I cannot continue to take you up this mountain because you're not strong enough, right? It took me years and years and, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of climbs to, understand that I was allowed to be that direct. I think we're taught it's so ingrained, particularly in women to be nice. Right. And I, I actually got feedback at the beginning of my guiding career that I was being passive aggressive. And that was never my intention. Oh my gosh. I was just like, how could you think that? I'm so sorry. And it was because I was trying to sort of sugarcoat these like shit bombs. Right. Oh, I'm so sorry. I just think maybe it's not your day. Maybe we should turn around, you know, and I, um, finally I realized it's so much better to say, um, I'm really sorry, but you're not strong enough to do this safely. Right. And so, um, I mean, that is a, for many CEOs and, you know, doctors and lawyers and businessmen, that is a, a revolutionary thing to be told. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and it forms these really fascinating, um, sort of like functionally intimate bonds that I've come to really appreciate and cherish. Um, so, so that is certainly something. Um, the vast majority of our clients are wonderful. You know, they understand that they've employed you because you have expertise in this area where they have none. And um, the vast majority of these people are great. They take it seriously. They're prepared. Um, but it's, uh, you know, you see these people like sort of real when you're just that direct. And it's <laughs> it's not any kind of a shock value thing. It's just like here's exactly how you shit in a bag and then what you do with it. Yeah. You know? and like <laughs> That's like 
it's kind of amazing. So yeah. yeah. And again, like you said, there, there's so few opportunities, unfortunately, in the rest of our lives where that kind of communication is really like the social contracts doesn't really happen. Yeah. And it's so funny, you know, I did that, um, in my single days, I did that dating for a while. <laughs> I would say things like, I really like you. These are, this is what I would like out of our next four dates. And then I think this is what should happen. It was like mind boggling to people that, <laughs> you know, that I would be that direct. And so I've, I've learned to temper it and understand when it's useful when it's not, but it's, um, I hope I never forget it. Yeah. I never forget how to be that direct. I mean, I, you obviously can't see this. I'm nodding so much. I mean, that's really like the through line of this whole show. So I can completely relate yeah. to what you're saying. And I feel like sometimes I get frustrated in situations where I feel like that's not received well. Like, of course, yeah, you have to be aware of sort of the, like I said, the social contract of the situation and it's not always appropriate in every situation, but that there's something so freeing about being like, Hey, this is what I see. This is what I am feeling. This is what I would like from this relationship or interaction or whatever. And just being able to name what's true for you and what your needs and desires are, what's not working is incredibly powerful. And yet it's so hard to do. Yeah, exactly. And I, that's, I mean, it's one of the things I noticed as I was listening to some of your past podcast episodes as I was preparing for this and, um, I mean, it's amazing. And I think it is, it's, it takes some practice to realize that, I mean, I keep saying this, but to realize you can be a hundred percent honest while still being respectful and kind, you know, that's like really being honest does not mean you're being a dick. It doesn't mean you're being an asshole. It just means like, Hey, this isn't working today. How about tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, and not confusing honesty with cruelty. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, which has to do with holding intention. And I actually learned that, um, I have a couple of friends who work in wilderness therapy. So they take, um, pretty rough kids, you know, juvenile delinquents who are often given the choice between like juvie and an outdoor experience. They take them out into the desert and they teach them life skills and hanging out with those people is just incredible <laughs> because they, they have had to learn that you don't have to mirror back emotion to be present and sympathetic right? I think as women were taught, um, we mimic or mirror back. Um, Oh my gosh, I'm just having such a hard day. Like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You want to tell me about it? Like even the tone of our voice we mimic, right. Or we, um, we sort of want to say like, yes, I'll come meet you in this space and help you in it. Right. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who was a, um, he's this like big kind of rough, um, like part native American, like very tattooed, dude. And I would, and he was a, a very close friend of mine for several years and I would have an issue and I would, um, I would obviously be upset and he would be like, man, I'm really sorry you're feeling that way. Like, how can I help? And it was really off-putting at first that he wouldn't, um, mirror back that emotion in the same way that a lot of my female friends would. And ultimately I realized that he was like hundred percent present, hundred percent there for me. Um, he just didn't feel the need to like you know, if I was in a hole, he didn't need to climb down in the hole with me. He was like at the top offering a ladder. Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and ultimately that felt a lot more loving and respectful. But yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's so interesting thinking about like the different ways that we communicate and how that plays out in these situations. Like even what you were saying before about, um, you know, having to tell someone that they're not strong enough, right. To keep going or whatever. It makes me want to ask for you to tell me the story of a time where you had to call off a climb or a summit attempt, like on behalf of the group, right. Sort of like how you evaluate risk or what it's like to be that person who's like, no, like, we can't continue. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and it is sort of this like omnipotent shark in the water, right. Um, 
I mean, I think the first thing to remember is that climbing a mountain is swimming out in the ocean, right? So the higher you go, you know, you, you always have to swim back, right? And so you always, with every step, you're gut checking, can I and the rest of my team descend this safely, right? It's, you know, the top is only halfway. Bad accidents frequently happen on the descent and not the climb up. Um, and so that's kind of a, kind of a heavy thought <laughs> as you're climbing up. Um, and I, I think all the time, so I wrote an article, uh, gosh, probably seven or eight years ago now about how, um, as a new guide on Mount Rainier, it's your job to turn around with the people who can't summit. So it's written into our, con- our permit, with the national park that we cannot turn people around alone on Mount Rainier. So if they're ascending with the group and they can't keep going, we have to turn around a guide with them to take them back to camp. And often that's young guides. And so I spent the first several months of my guiding career turning around with people. (laughs) Um, And it became this fascinating social experiment, right? And some of them, it was physical, a turned ankle or a bum knee or maybe you bonk, whatever. Um, But for the vast majority of them, it was mental or emotional or psychological. And I thought that was so interesting because these people are, uh, they're very invested in this climb. You know, it comes at huge opportunity costs. There are thousands of dollars into the climb and the gear um, and something snaps, right? They just can't keep going. And the best way I can describe it is, have you ever like gone out for a run and you just can't be alone in your head for that run? Oh my gosh. That was so well said. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're like, fuck, I can't do this today. Right. <laughs> it's, it has nothing to do with being physical. It's just like, you're like, I, I cannot pull this off today. Um, it's that, but on a climb. And, uh, so I started to do all this research about it and I found a study done by the Mountaineering Federation of Iran, which exists strangely enough. And, um, they did this study where they took a whole bunch of college students out on a climb of a local mountain. And every, every student who participated in this climb experienced a lasting increase in self-esteem, which is awesome and kind of expected. Right. But they found that the participants who did not summit had a greater and longer lasting increase in self-esteem than the participants who did summit. Interesting. And I thought that was like, that like blew my mind. It like blew the top of my head off. Right. I mean, because what the fuck, right? (laughs) Like you failed, you didn't reach the summit. Like why? Right. And how does this make you feel better? Um, and I've, at first I thought, at first I really challenged that and, and didn't understand it. And, but the more and more that I see it, the more I think, People are coming to, um, you know, if you think about your comfort zone and it's this circle, right? There's like the outer rim of that is where you're a little uncomfortable but growing, right? Um, And then, of course, there's a part at the very edge of that circle where you're just like, it's too much and you're shutting down or broken or whatever. But I think that the more people are in that outer edge where their comfort is being stretched and challenged to grow, I think... um, often the climb feels like absolute dog shit to those people. Like, it's like fucking hell. Right. But those people go back home and they sit with that experience and they have to make some peace with the questions that have been brought up by the universe. Right. And so people who are really forced to sit in that space of where they're a little bit stretched, I think that's where the real growth happens. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, even what you were talking about, about, you know, those runs where you go and you can't be out in your own head. It's one of my favorite things about long distance hiking is that 
you aren't an hour away from home. You actually can't turn around, right? Like you might be a couple of days from town or there was my experience in Arizona last year that, I mean, that's for sure the longest hike that I had ever done. And it was so solo. Like I was alone, but that trail in the fall, as opposed to maybe the PCT or other things, like it would be two, three, four and a half days without seeing another human, which maybe to folks listening doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, that was the most alone I had ever been in my life. And you just feel like you're the sole survivor of the zombie apocalypse. And it was this really intense thing of you have that feeling and you can't be with yourself for even one more minute, but you have to, and you also have to make decisions and your decisions have consequences. And it's just the, like, you want to, you know, hold a pillow up to your face and just scream. I mean, sometimes that's what it is. You just like sit on the side of the trail and sob uncontrollably or, you know, whatever. You just have to find a way through that. And I feel like my draw to long distance hiking is somewhere in that place where it's, there is no escape hatch essentially. And, and I don't mean like a life or death, you know, call search and rescue type situation, but those types of things where like, actually everything's fine, like circumstantially, but it's, you have to find a way to move through that. And there's like you said, like that's where growth comes from. Yeah, that's so well said, Nicole. And, um, and also really, really endearing to think about like <laughs> sitting at the side of the trail, like sobbing. I've, I have so been there. I so get it. <laughs> so, and good for you for embracing that. Right. I mean, I think it's, um, it's one of those things where to even say, I don't know, I had a friend who was a counselor and she would say, you don't have to fix the problem. You can just sit in a room with it and be like, I see you over there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and and I've come to really love that way of thinking about like, I don't have to solve you today, but I can just enter the room and like, be like, I see you, you exist yeah. sit with you. Don't come any closer, but I see you, you know? Um, there's a piece of yours. I feel like I've read so much of your writing lately that it's all kind of run together, but there was a quote that I pulled out that I loved so much where you said, mountains are both more and less than most people imagine them to be. When you reach a summit, you only find the things that you've carried with you. And I would love for you to talk about that a little more, because I think that plays into what we're talking about, this idea that like, it's more and less than you think. And when you reach the top, maybe you have an expectation that it's going to be something, but you only find the things that you've carried with you. I don't know. I thought that was such an interesting phrasing. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that was from a piece that I wrote from a really raw place. It's an essay about love. And um, I, gosh, you know, I think mountains are so, um, they're so charismatic and there's so many like inspirational memes and posters. And I, I go through phases where I rage against that. Um, my mom has a treatment for breast cancer and her oncologist has these inspirational posters featuring like, um, the inspirational skyline of all these mountains I've climbed. Um, and I just fucking hate it. Like, it's like, I just rage against it because it's like, climbing mountains is a privilege, right? It's such an incredible gift and privilege. And, um, I think it's such a easy, um, metaphor that can be really easily appropriated. And I'm sort of free associating here. I don't know if I'm answering your question exactly, but, um, I, I think it's really easy to put a lot of things onto that experience. And, you know, mountains at the end of the day are a giant piece of rock, right? And we romanticize them and we um, idealize them and we sort of make them sexy and we we love all these things. And it's, um, a mountain is any one of a number of hard things that humans choose to push themselves against, right? Mm -hmm. And they happen to be really beautiful. I mean, I'm certainly not immune to the incredible beauty of the alpine environment, but, um, you know, I think they're, 
there are a lot of ways to challenge yourself to be uncomfortable and honest and true and to sort of like sit with real things. And I think that, um, you know, mountains have a way of, of stripping away, you know, as you climb, you strip away pretense, you strip away bullshit, you strip away extra layers of skin, you strip away, you know, <laughs> all those fluffy things that make up your self identity. And so you, you sort of get to the top and you think you sort of like, look at this little pile of things you have and they're, um, they're small and honest and true and they've let you walk this incredible path. And, um, and that's both, that's both really simple because it, um, you know, all you've done is put one foot in front of the other for hours and hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of this like, you know, extreme process of stripping away and simplification. But, um, I actually think there's like incredible beauty and complexity in that simultaneously. Yeah. So. Yeah. I love that. I mean, yeah, so that I, makes sense. I kind of rambled. No, but. <laughs> it, it, it totally makes, I mean, and again, like I'm not like looking for you to have the capital A answer. I just think that these are interesting things to talk about because yeah, I think especially in the age of social media and particularly Instagram, that it is so easy to romanticize what things like this are like. And of course, as you said, it is beautiful and majestic and all of these things. And also like, we're still, I don't know, like ourselves with all of our shit. Like when we, <laughs> like we think it's easy to think, oh, I'm going to go on this journey. It's going to change everything everything. And maybe it'll change some things, but like, also, I don't know, you like are who you are. And that thing that you don't want to deal with at home is going to be the thing that you still don't want to deal with, you know, when you're like 2000 miles into a thing. And I don't know, I think this is just something refreshing. I think about having that like reiterated. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I think about is, you know, all of these sort of like complex, nuanced, Pinterest worthy, inspirational workstone poster, all that shit aside, there's something really magical about going out and being reminded how small you are. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's really grounding and really humbling and kind of a relief, right? We, we think we're the sort of like master of our own fate and we're so powerful and we're choosing our best lives and we're crafting our truth and all this like, you know, <laughs> inspirational <laughs> crap that we all believe. And I do too. Don't get me wrong. But, um, man, there is something so refreshing about going out there and being like, there is this huge, beautiful world that is pulsing with an energy that is so much bigger than I am. And at the end of the day, all you have to do is get up and feed yourself and mm -hmm. <laughs> feel about your day. You know, yeah, about that. I agree about the importance of the reminder that you are small and actually not that important. Right? And that <laughs> I think something that I think about a lot is, um, or that I really appreciate about, I mean, obviously for me, this all relates to hiking, but I think that it's, it's similar, um, that this idea I found very freeing about my preferences, not mattering. Like I realized how much time I spend in my little monkey mind of, Oh, I wish this was different. I wish, you know, I had more time or I wasn't so stressed or I wish this person said this thing instead of that other thing. And then when you're on trail, it's like, I can spend this whole time wishing that it wasn't steep or it wasn't rocky or it wasn't so hot or there was more water. And it doesn't matter because the trail is the trail is the trail. Like it's going to, I have to hike it regret. Like it doesn't care about my preferences. And I think that there was something very freeing for me about that. Yeah, exactly. And it, um, learning how to just sit with that discomfort and just take it one step at a time is magical. I think and yeah. also a total bitch, but Oh no, it's, <laughs> it's the worst. And it's also yeah. yeah, this, I just, this kind of idea that like, okay, well the trail can be rocky and I can still hike it. I cannot be in the mood to hike over rocks for hours and I can still do it. Right. Kind of like holding these dichotomies that I'm not as good at in my off trail life where I'm so like, Hmm, I want things to be the way that I want them to be, you know? And like right, I try to exactly. micromanage like all of these conditions and to be in a place where you literally don't have any choices. Like the water, 
water, the next water source is as far away as it is, like regardless of what my like little feelings are about it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's very well said, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Something else that I've been thinking about ever since I started, you know, taking hiking more seriously, I've been really fascinated with the topic of courage, this idea of, I mean, a word that's thrown around a lot, like what it is, how do we build our lives around it? And I've come to think that courage isn't necessarily the opposite of fear, which is what I used to think. But now I've started to think about courage as the opposite of comfort. Like this idea that courage or bravery requires discomfort. It doesn't even have to be about big things, but just this active sort of choosing courage over comfort. And that's what leads to a brave life. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on courage or bravery or anything in that space that you want to talk about or what you feel like you've learned over the last, you know, however many years of doing this. Yeah. Gosh. Um, what immediately comes, I think that's really perceptive. And I think what immediately comes to mind is I hear many, many people say, Oh, climbing is so amazing. I could never do it because I'm afraid of heights. Right. And I say, that's actually like a very natural human impulse that stems from your evolutionary instinct to not fall off things. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't want to plunge to my death. Awesome. I'm a human. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, it's, um, that's actually incredibly normal. And, um, and I, I guess sort of what that's led me to believe is that, um, to me, courage is being able to acknowledge how things are scary and uncomfortable and, um, to name those things, you know, I've come to think there's a lot of power in naming, naming that. So I get a lot of clients who are really nervous or really psyched out. And I, um, you know, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be nervous about the magnitude of this undertaking. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to, um, have mixed feelings. It's okay to miss home. Um, you know, and every time I drive up toward Mount Rainier, which is 14,410 feet tall, (laughs) um, I'm scared shitless. Literally, Nicole, every time I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? That mountain is huge. Like, I'm supposed to take people up that? Oh my God, it's enormous, right? (laughs) And every year I'm like, well, this is it. I'm probably over the hill. I can't do this anymore. That mountain is too big. (laughs) Um, And so I've really come to appreciate the value in sort of naming those things and saying like, okay, I'm going to name those feelings and put them over here. Like, maybe on my side, not in the front of my mind, but in the side. And then I'm going to break this down into steps, right? So um, I sort of lie to myself and say, the only thing I have to do right now is get to the end of this next step. I just have to eat lunch. And then I just have to walk for an hour to get to this rest break. And then I just have to set up my tent and go to bed. And then I just have to wake up in the morning and get some calories on board. And then I have to wake up in the morning and, or, you know, then I have to put my boots on and walk for an hour. And it's such a, such an unoriginal metaphor to say big mountains are climbed one step at a time, but it's, um, man, is it something that I have learned resoundingly to the bottom of my soul? Yeah. I mean, cliches are cliche for a reason, right? It's funny hearing you talk about that, the, the real practical reality of one step at a time, the thing that flashed into my mind, and this might be sort of a strange parallel, but I remember the one really horrible heartbreak breakup that I went through in my life when I was in my early twenties, I think. Yeah. Early twenties. I mean, it was literally like the, you know, close the blinds. That's it. I'm going to die here. You know, my life is over. It's all, you know, like that's it. It's it's all over. But that was the coping mechanism. Like finally was like, okay, like literally all you have to do 
is stand up. Okay. All you have to do is walk to the bathroom. All you have to do is take a shower. It's helped, you know, with depressive episodes too. Like it comes up when I talk to, you know, other friends who experience mental illness, that this idea of like hard things are accomplished one step at a time. And again, you're right. It sounds so cliche, but when you start to look at the reality of that, okay, all you have to do is whatever this very next thing is, like it really is as simple as it sounds an incredibly powerful coping mechanism. Yeah. And you know, what is life but coping, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. What are some common fears of clients that you hear a lot? Oh my gosh. Um, I think the biggest one that I don't hear, but I see is people are afraid that they're not going to live up to the idea of themselves that they have. Ooh, right? that's real. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> okay. Say more uh, about that. Cause I feel like, <laughs> like yeah, that's, that's something. Yeah. I mean, people, um, gosh, you know, we all have these concepts of who we are and how we operate and the life we're going to lead and, um, the pictures we're going to take in that framed summit photo on the wall. And, um, you know, people show up in their, I see this more, you know, probably the confidence gap is, is part of this, but I see this more in men than women. Um, and there's, um, this expectation that you're going to, you know, handle yourself a certain way under pressure or, um, you know, your training is going to pay off or you're going to, you know, the summit is going to be this or, or maybe at a broader level, um, you know, this mountain is going to mean this thing to you. Right. Um, you know, you live in the city and you're making enough money to meet your needs. Plus start thinking about like a little bit higher on the heart hierarchy of needs. And so this is going to be the thing that like scratches the itch of the like, you know, upper level hierarchy of needs. So you down this path of more meaning, um, you know, and you make it like 300 feet and you've eaten too many pancakes and you get explosive diarrhea <laughs> right? or, um, or you're halfway up a mountain and you realize, um, it's just on the cards for you that day. Right. Like that's, um, that is big and really challenging for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Um, the, it's really hard to have our notions of who we are rocked that hard. I think, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of other, you know, sort of more baseline fears that are, are common to you, but that's, I think that's the big one. Can you tell me about a time where that happened for you, where you had to come up against like who you thought you were or how you thought you would behave in a situation and then, you know, that it was different than you expected? Oh, gosh, let me think about that one for a second. Um, I'm sure there are. Actually, the, yeah, something I'm noticing, and this is not 100% in the Alpine setting, um, you know, there are traditionally not very many women in the guiding industry. Um, and I've been pretty vocal about how to change that and why it's important and, um, you know, sort of things like that. And, um, so a lot of young women are entering the guiding industry and I've run up a couple situations where, um, it's essentially like title nine, but in the 20 <laughs> teens mm-hmm. uh, where they're not maybe as qualified as their male counterparts. And man, am I having to do some complicated mental math? Cause I want to be an ally to young women in the industry. I mean, desperately I want that. Um, and I want to be an advocate and I want to be a mentor and I want to, um, help those people. And I also 
it's like, well, fuck, like you got some chances that I didn't get even 10 years ago because people are advocating for diversity in this industry, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and man, I want to be gracious about that and have an abundance mentality and, um, mentor people and walk the walk. And I, I think I am, I really think I am, but man, am I having to like sit with some of my own bullshit on that? (laughs) Yeah, that's an incredibly honest answer. And I think obviously you are talking about it through a really specific lens and a specific experience, but I think that that's, it's really universal. Like we want to assume that we're these really gracious people who aren't jealous and who don't get caught up in the, and yet it happens to everyone in some capacity where you have these like really ugly thoughts sometimes. And yeah, I think that just what you said, like figuring out like how to sit with that, how to work through that, how to still show up as the person that you want to be while not pretending that you don't also feel that way and struggle with that. Like, I think that's a very universal experience. Yeah. And man, is it humbling to notice that in myself. To be like, wow, I'm more of an asshole than I thought I was. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But you know, I mean, this is another thing. I mean, just like courage is feeling fear and acknowledging it and not acting on it. I mean, I think like I've come to realize like maybe it's okay to have these shitty thoughts and sit with them and be like, you know what? I have this shitty thought, but what makes me not an asshole or I hope not an asshole is not acting on it. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Leaving space in the middle. Yeah. 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 Um, God, I'm not a saint. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, so I have, this might be sort of a, a strange question, but you mentioned, you know, spending roughly half the year doing, you know, guiding and all of this really intense outdoor stuff. And then, you know, the, the rest of the year where you're home and you're writing and things are, you know, really different. I'm interested in the experience of like coming home to comfort after a season of guiding, like how to balance living in two separate worlds or like what sort of reintegration feels like, especially when you're coming home to people who maybe don't quite understand or whose lives are so different. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's actually an incredibly perceptive question. Um, because they are really different worlds, right? They're guiding and, you know, climbing and being outside is very extroverted. It's a lot of sort of communal living, a lot of, um, you know, sort of talking to groups, managing people, um, sharing tents with people. It's, um, it's a ton of very active, very, um, you know, very extroverted time. And I come back and I, I live alone. I talk to my dog a lot. I, (laughs) you know, being a writer is a lot of time in your head. And, um, I've certainly learned to have a little bit of patience with myself around those transitions. Right. I mean, if, um, I have friends who work, you know, more traditional schedules, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five. And, um, and they can acknowledge to themselves that they can't like flip a switch between work and home when like that, that 20 minute drive home might be nice to transition. Right. Um, and so I've come to extrapolate that a little bit for myself and say, you know what, if it takes me a day or two or a week to make this transition, that's okay. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of gentleness with myself there has been big. Um, and I have a couple consistent themes that I really work hard to protect. You know, 10 minutes a day alone is really nice for me. Um, even if it literally is only 10 minutes, that's a really important theme. Um, taking a couple minutes to sort of think about what I'm grateful for is really important. Um, and gosh, so I come off the mountain and I'm usually tired, you know, dirty, have a ton of laundry. Um, so I 
generally sort of put out some fires in my email inbox and then try to ground into those, those themes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something else that I'm curious about, I think that anyone who does something in the realm of what you do that has such like an easily romanticized sort of like sexy side to it, right? Like your pictures are gorgeous, right? The places you are are gorgeous. And so it's like this idea of leading a life of adventure. I think it's easy to think that it's like, all this really amazing summit photo type situation, which obviously once people think about it, of course it's hard work, of course it's other things, but I'm really curious about, um, what you think are some of the specific things that you've had to sacrifice or maybe if sacrifice isn't the right word, like the things that you don't have or don't do in order to live this less conventional life. Cause we can't have all the things, right? Yeah. That's, you're asking incredible questions. Um, <laughs> something I struggle with a ton is how to be a contributing member of my community, mm-hmm. right? I, my, my tribe, actually, I guess we're not supposed to use that word anymore. My, my community, um, you know, I, when you're gone half the year, um, you know, my closest friends I'll see once or twice a week when I'm home and then I'll essentially like fuck off to Africa for two months. You know, <laughs> it's, um, it's like, well, cool. Thanks for being there when I asked you to, sorry, I can't be there for you for the next two months. Um, and I struggle with that a ton. I mean, it's, um, it has felt shitty at times in the last couple of years to not be a consistent and contributing member of my, you know, family friend group. Um, and I, I mean, I obviously try to be when I'm home, of course, but, um, that's something I struggle with a lot is like, I expect people to be around and, and there for me when I'm home, but I can't necessarily return the favor. Mm-hmm. So that's a, something I, I wrestle with a lot. Um, the other weird thing is, um, people assume that I'm like a super athlete because I, I'm guiding. Right. And, Guiding is great and it is more active than most people's jobs probably. But when I'm guiding internationally, I'm actually very actively getting out of shape, right? It's a ton of travel time, ton of time in like planes, trains, cars, Jeeps. Um, I'm not in control of my sleep schedule or my food, right? Which is, um, and I don't mean like at a high level, like training for the Olympics, you need to be tracking that stuff. I mean, like often I'm super jet lagged. Often there's only you know, very rudimentary food available. Like, (laughs) I mean, like at a very baseline level, I can be out of control of those things. And so, um, I actually kind of have this strange ebb and flow where I typically enter a busy guiding season feeling relatively strong. And then over the course of a guiding season, I, um, I tend to lose muscle and lose sort of, um, (laughs) this is so cheesy, but I think, I think about people in terms of like, if you're a video game and I don't even play video games ever, but, um, there's like life points, like am I in the green or the yellow or the red, <laughs> um, like health life points. So I tend to go into guiding seasons, like a strong green, like I'm well rested. I'm fit. I'm have been doing my yoga and my self care. I'm like, I'm a crouching tiger. Right. Mm-hmm. And over the course of a season that really gets away from me. Right. Um, the Himalaya is the best example. You, know, you go on a big Himalayan expedition and you, um, I come back having metabolized a lot of my muscle, right? So I'm like skinny, but really flabby. <laughs> I'm super sleep deprived. I'm, um, have been eating like rice and lentils for two months. So I'm like, you know, nowhere near as well nourished as normal. My sleep schedule is totally jacked. Um, 
And so I get off the plane and I'm sort of this like Vogue trim weight and people assume like, oh, great, you must be super fit because you're guiding. And it's like, well, I'm going to eat three meals and get pudgy. <laughs> like I'm going to spend two weeks sleeping and then I'm going to have to spend six months getting back to w- be as strong as I was when I left for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doing having this kind of lifestyle almost counterintuitively because it seems and is like active and adventure and outdoorsy and that type of stuff, but that you just by the nature of it aren't able to care for yourself at the same level as you could if you had that sort of stability at home. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, I think about that too. Even, I mean, again, my longest hike was last year was 44 days. I'm very curious to see what happens after four months this year, but my metabolism was like completely jacked up. I basically don't sleep on trail. I was like, I don't even know how I survived that. I was so thirsty and so hungry and so tired. Yeah. And then at the end I was just like, all right, now how do I like go back and be a person in the world? And that's, I mean, my question for you about sort of the reintegration type stuff was definitely from I mean, a selfish place of, I've heard from other friends that have done, you know, four month, five month, six month hikes, that the coming back and reintegration and post-trail depression is a very real thing. And so I'm sort of starting to think about that in advance of taking my longest trip. Like, okay, like what's that going to be like when I've spent four months doing something that no one in my at-home life can relate to? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so incredibly perceptive of you. Um, (laughs) I mean, remarkably so. I think, um, you know, two things. One is I, I have come to believe that high highs often inevitably mean low lows, right? When I have these like rock star expeditions, you know, I go to these sexy places and everybody summits and I come home with like 20 cool Instagram pictures and, you know, a stamp from Mongolia and my passport. It's awesome. And then inevitably there's like a commensurate low, (laughs) um, you know, maybe like I come home, I see my friends and family, I sort of like do a lap and high five everybody. And then I come home and I'm like, what the fuck is my life? What am I doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, I've learned that that isn't, I've learned to just sort of like acknowledge that and be in it for a little while and then like acknowledge that it's not who I am and it's not what my life is, but it's just sort of part of the, the trip, you know, Mm -hmm. I think if you only ever read high highs, they'd be artificial. So I've learned that high highs mean low, low sometimes. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Yeah. I agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I also, I mean, man, if you can find people to share that experience with, you know, find your, find your group of people who can commiserate with that. Mm-hmm. I've also been thinking a lot over the past couple of years of the benefit of doing hard things. And I'd love to hear what you feel like you've learned from pushing yourself, you know, to the edges of your comfort zone and to do so many hard things. What do you feel like has come out of that for you? Oh man, I love that phrase that you can do hard things. I, <laughs> whenever I, just two days ago, I was handing out some certificates from my Mount Rainier group. And I said, I hope someday you look at this certificate and remember the time you did a hard thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I feel like our generation is, um, I feel like we crave hard things. I feel like a lot of things are automated. A lot of things are sort of taken care of. And I feel like we really more than ever crave hard things. And um, yeah, I, I just think it's really important to know that you can do hard things and it's okay if they are hard. Um, especially in the social media highlight real culture, right? Um, I mean, I get intimidated all the time by all my friends on social media posting these like mountainscape vistas and speedy marathons and, (laughs) um, yeah, I wish I had more to say about that, but I just, I really do think it's important to do Mm -hmm. hard things. 
Yeah, I think so too. Um, to know who you are while you're doing hard things, right? Because there are going to be hard things in your life. And if you know who you are when you're doing hard things, I think you can be more gracious when there are hard things that you haven't chosen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely. I mean, that's the thing. I, I reference this all the time. My friend Lauren says this, this idea that it's a privilege to be able to choose your suffering, right? That there's like that when you were saying, you know, everything being automated and easy and craving doing hard things like that's, and I feel the same way, an unbelievably privileged way to feel right. And the ability to choose hard things. And then what do you do with the hard things that you didn't choose? Right. And, um, yeah, I think there's something in there for sure. I mean, I think about this, this, like we can do hard things is definitely like a mantra of mine that I go back to a lot. Do you have a favorite quote or mantra or life philosophy or like something that you feel like runs through your head a lot in those types of hard situations? Oh, I do. I really do. Um, and this is not one that I heard. It's just one that I sort of started saying to myself, but, um, the way out is through. I feel like I certainly when I was younger, less so now, but I, um, I just wanted to quit. <laughs> like if, if I was climbing a mountain and it was hard, I would want to turn around right? Or if I was in the middle of a hard thing, I would want to walk away from it. Or I would not even want to, but I would think about walking away from it. Um, and it's really powerful for me to remind myself that the way out of a hard situation is through it, mm-hmm. right? That the way out is forward. Um, and that I've chosen this and it's important to go do the hard thing, but that every step deeper in it is is a step toward completion. <laughs> so, um I don't know. I don't know if that helps, but yeah, totally. Tell me about a few of the things on your bucket list. Ooh, um, man, the big meaty thing I'm really wrestling with right now is writing a book, um, which is so exciting. Uh, I, you know, I've published, um, a lot of essays and articles and editorial pieces and stories, and that's been really wonderful and really satisfying. Um, and I think I've gotten a lot of signs from the universe that it's time to sort of like bite off a bigger goal in that realm. Um, feels like time to write a book and I'm a little bit in my head about, um, I guess I feel like if I'm writing articles sort of like where I'm putting myself in the community wide conversation is like a scatter plot. Right. And so any individual article is one point on that scatter plot and it's not like, an X of like, here's who I am and what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, <laughs> um, if you just like throw paint at a wall, you know, each individual point isn't quite as scary. Cause it's like, this will even out over the next 10 years. <laughs> um, whereas a book feels like taking a big fat Sharpie and writing an X and saying like, this is where I am and who I am and what I want to say. Mm-hmm. And so that feels scary. You know, it's scary to be known. It's scary to write my name in Sharpie, but, um, I think that I think the feeling of it being scary means it's worth doing. So I'm working on that right now. Um, yeah, I think that's what I got there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of writing, that's something else that I wanted to to talk to you about for sure. I was so sad that I couldn't come to your adventure writing workshop in Bend this spring. Um, yeah. Do you have plans for others in this area or virtual workshops or what is your um, sort of writing teaching schedule look like in the next however long? Yeah. Thank you so much for asking. Um, so in early April, what you were asking about, I, um, I did a tour through Oregon. We partnered with Deschutes Brewery and Oregon Wild, which is a nonprofit that does, um, uh, protection for natural lands. And I taught writing workshops in Portland, Eugene, Newport, and Bend. Um, and it was incredible. They were each one night adventure writing workshops and they were so fun and full of people with, 
energy and insight and intuition. And um, they were so rewarding. And so I would love to do that on a broader scale. And there's certainly thoughts of doing that um, maybe this fall, um, potentially repeat loop through Oregon and maybe down into California. Um, I have a little 15 foot travel trailer. And so it's, we joke that we're kind of a traveling clown car, you know, it'd be <laughs> me and my dog and a couple friends. And <laughs> um, so that's really fun. And uh, also kind of ridiculous, but um, I teach in Seattle pretty frequently. I get requests to teach up here. So I teach, I end up teaching usually roughly once a month in the Puget Sound area. Um, and I have taught some um, online workshops, but I, I've been leaning away from those a little bit. They seem, um, the energy is pretty different. Mm-hmm. In those. Um, I think there's so much online access that I think there's a real beauty in doing it in person. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, Online stuff is great, but there's no substitute for in-person stuff. I feel like with things like writing too, it's just, it's so helpful to be in the space and to kind of force yourself to do it. Yeah. And to, you know, physically turn off everything else and be there with a pencil and paper, I think is really magical. So, yeah. So when you teach on the subject of this, like adventure writing specifically, right? Outdoor writing, that Mm -hmm. type of thing. What are a few of your favorite tips to share? Ooh, yeah. Um, the, the big thing I talk about a lot, and I'm sure you heard this from your friend who was at my workshop in Eugene is, um, you know, I talk about how it's really important to ask a question with your work and then, um, use your writing as an exploration, trying to move toward the answer of that question. Right. So I think the example I use is, (laughs) um, if you think about, uh, so, so the, the big picture is that sort of the better quality your writing is the less action there has to be to make it readable. Um, and an example of that is think about somebody like Dan Brown, right. Who wrote, uh, the Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, right? Like it's chock full of action. <laughs> There's like sexy scientists and nuclear bombs and the world is going to end and like the Mona Lisa is being stolen, right? Um, the writing is terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry to go on record saying that, but like the quality of the prose is awful, right? But there's so much action, right? And that makes that book readable. And on the far other end of the spectrum, we have somebody like Hemingway where nothing ever happens right? It's like somebody looks poignantly into a sunset and somebody takes a deep breath and 10 pages later, you're like, wow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, but the writing is like magnificent. It just glows. Right. And so, um, if you are the kind of, you know, if you are already Hemingway then disregard this, but for most of us, while we're leaning into the craft a little bit, I think, um, you know, creating a construct that forces you to move in your writing from point A to point B um, by asking a question, I think can be super, super valuable, right? So this is the difference between like, um, I just want to meditate on why climbing is so awesome versus um, why did trad climbing help me overcome an eating disorder, Hmm. right? So like those are two different essays, right? Two very different essays. Um, In some ways, in some ways they can be addressing the same subjects, but um, you know, maybe about accountability and telling yourself the truth and accepting your body and leaning into strength, but by phrasing it as a question and then writing your essay that way, I think most people can then, um, often self edit to have a little bit more movement from point A to point B, which is really helpful for Mm -hmm. people. 
Yeah. Yeah. Once you're clear on essentially like the purpose, like the, so what, why am I telling this story? Like, what am I trying to answer through whatever this piece is? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What advice do you have, um, maybe for new writers or someone who is thinking about building a career in this direction? Oh man. Um, yeah, I think from a, I'll start pragmatic and then I'll get more metaphorical. (laughs) Um, Pragmatically, I think um, it's important to understand that the people I know who make a living as writers, and I know a lot of them, so I always tell people it is a viable option. You can do it. Um, but they are, they have their fingers in a lot of pies, right? So they're, um, they are their own web developers, and they're, um, they often have blogs, and they're teaching, and they're writing, and they're reporting, and they're... Um, you know, these people are hustling really hard. Um, if it is your main gig, it's a, it's a hustle. Um, so that certainly, um, and I would also say be clear with yourself about what you want to do and why. I think a lot of people want to be travel writers because they think it's sexy or glamorous or because it sounds cool or because they have some idea of what it is based on an Instagram photo. And, and that's lovely. Um, but I, as a freelancer myself, I've had to really learn to define success in concrete terms, right? Um, this month success means getting X number of publications or this year I'm going to make X amount of money or I'm going to, um, make X amount of money while having X amount of days off or I'm going to, you know, so clearly defining what success is for you, I think is important. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think, um, you know, in the more philosophical realm, um, man, tell the truth, right? I mean, just like it was a theme when we talked about mountains, I think in writing, it's, it's really easy to get into these sort of like broad cliches about van life and adventure and millennials and, you know, oh man. But if you, if you have the bravery to tell the truth and be specific, you know, specific is relatable. Even if people can't relate to your story, they can relate to the core emotion that's in that story. Yeah. Um, and that resonates. That's like a glowing thread that runs through the fabric of your writing. And if you can get that, and if you, even if you're not polished, even if you're not writing perfectly, if you have the bravery to be specific and honest, then that is relatable, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, if you have to think back on your own writing career so far, is there a piece in particular that sticks out for you where you were like, yep, I really told the truth here? Um, the piece you quoted about the one about mountains are both more and less than we imagine them to be. Um, that is about um, guiding and sort of young love and my relationship with um you know, between the romantic relationships I had and climbing and it's called, I think it's called thoughts on mountains and love. Um, and that was written from a super raw place. I mean, it was like 4am, a bottle of wine, <laughs> like vomiting words. And that piece has been, um, it's been syndicated a lot of times, I mm-hmm. think. And I look back at it and I'm like, wow, I just slipped my wrists and bled all over my diary and then put it out there. And it's, um, it's not something I would have written thinking people wanted it. You know, if I sit down to to write for an assignment for a magazine, I think I write what people, what I think people want, but that piece is written from a really true place. And it's, um, 
a, I don't want to sound presumptuous, but I think that's landed. Yeah. I mean, definitely, I mean, definitely landed for me. So yeah, that's true. Um, when you think ahead, I mean, maybe it's the book that you're starting to work on or think about, or, you know, maybe even just like other writing pieces in general, what are some things that you want to either talk more about or tell the truth about? Like, what do you see in the future of your writing of things that you really want to tackle? Oh man. Um, you know, I see this generational charge right now. Um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of um, men and women who are in there, I don't know, between 24 and 35 right now who um, they're van lifers or they're finding the outdoors or they're hiking or they're climbing or they're um, traveling a lot or they're just sort of like finding this, um, I don't want to say alternative, but sort of like um, they're sort of writing their own paths, right? Sure. Um, and I feel like we're all sort of at the point where we're all saying like, okay, now what? <laughs> like, so what, you know, cool. So I quit my corporate job and I'm supporting myself. This is not me, but this is an example, you know, living in a van, managing the social media for a company or being a 60% time web developer or running a podcast or I'm doing this or that, like, okay, so what? Right. So you're, you're 33 and you're doing that and that's great. And you, you know, you're traveling a lot and you're feeling really actualized. Um, is that, and I don't know, but like, is that enough for you until you die until you, you know, until your predicted life expectancy at age 80, like, are, is this generation of like van lifers going to try to have kids? Is it going to, um, are we going to keep doing this indefinitely? I mean, and I, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> but I, I'm so interested in that. And I, so I actually just talked to, um, the Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership um, Instructor Summit. Are you familiar with Knowles? Yeah. Yeah. So I was their guest speaker at their once a year instructor summit um, last week. And I went and I talked about gender and I talked about, um, I presented like five concrete ways that their community can be more inclusive of female students. Um, Right. So concepts like according to this study, you know, female students are going to be more receptive to this to praise that focuses on the process, not intrinsic ability, right? Or um, the way men and women intrinsically are predisposed to perceive risk, things like that. So I had this really outlined PowerPoint presentation (laughs) with like these like five research-based ways that we can be more inclusive of female students. And then I was sort of like, and I think it's bullshit and masturbatory that you invited me here to talk about this when you know, like your (laughs) female instructors have a much higher attrition rate than your male instructors and you don't pay female instructors a rate, you know, a a wage at which they can have children. Like I think, um, you know, when you're expecting your female instructors to like quote marry out so that they can have families, like, of course you're not going to get female students who stick Mm -hmm. around. Um, this terrifying talk to give because I gave this like planned out presentation and then I was like and here's a grenade that I'm gonna like lob like I think it's bullshit that you want me to talk about this <laughs> but um you know but I think we we're looking for this meaning um through all of these like instagrammable pursuits and I'm just so curious and so thoughtful right now about um 
what are the next steps from that? Like, what are the yeah. corollaries from that? Yeah. I mean, and uh, like, I'm going to ask this question. I don't even know that you have an answer to it, but like, what do you feel like you're searching for through like living this life and making these choices? Like, is there something that you feel like you're chasing or, cause I, I, what you're speaking to, I feel like is very relatable. Yeah. I, um, and I hope I don't sound like I'm on some soapbox. Cause I, um, I certainly don't think I figured it all out, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I I don't know what I'm chasing and I I hope that I'm not chasing anything. I hope that it's not um I hope that I'm like running for the joy of running and not running towards or against something. Mm, yeah, that's well um, said. I'd have to sit with that one for a long time to really gut check how true that is. <laughs> but but I certainly hope that and I um Yeah. Yeah. I think about this. I think about it a lot in terms of the, what am I doing? Cause I want to do it versus what am I doing for, because of my ego that I think it will like look good when I put this on the internet or whatever. Like, and it's sometimes really hard to separate those things out. And it doesn't mean that you can't do something that you're then excited to brag about or whatever. It's all, I don't know. It's pretty complicated, but it, it's definitely a question that I ask myself a lot too. Like, why are you doing what you're doing? And is, you know, whatever, whatever that looks like. Yeah. I mean, if nobody ever saw this, would it still be worth doing? Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 And I mean, again, there's like, these are the hard questions, right? <laughs> like no answers necessarily. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously we've covered a lot of ground, but, um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you definitely want to discuss or any stories that come to mind that you want to share? Oh gosh. Um, thank you for asking. I feel like we're, we've covered an incredible depth and breadth. So yeah. Okay. Then just a couple more writing related questions for you, especially given your, that you had, you know, more formal education in writing too. Has there been any advice or I don't know, a particular exercise or something from your own education in like specifically creative nonfiction that's stuck mm -hmm. with you? That's been really helpful. There has actually. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of, um, sort of mystique around being a writer. I think that's like sort of this considered this like nebulous, magical craft with a full moon. And, um, you know, I hear a lot of people say, Oh, I'm just not in the mood or the inspiration hasn't struck. Um, writing is a job, right? It's a trade, just like being an electrician or being a doctor or, um, a woodworker. Like the way writing happens is you sit your ass down in the chair and you do it. <laughs> and I, um, I'm incredibly motivated by deadlines for that reason. And so I often very intentionally give myself deadlines so that I'm forced to do it. Um, and I very frequently recommend a book called The Creative Habit by a woman named Twyla Tharp. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's all about how like creativity happens when you show the fuck up and do it. <laughs> um, and I have this, you know, I went to this master's program in creative writing and honestly, it did not teach me how to sell work. It did not teach me how to make money writing, but what it did teach me how to do is to, um, generate new content on a deadline. And to demystify the process of getting feedback, to take edits graciously, um, and to just treat it as work, right? Not as this magical, nebulous, soul-fulfilling, you know, thing. It's like, it's work. You show up and you do it. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, I would love to hear a breakdown of when you're obviously like not 
guiding, you know, when you're at home, sort of a week Mm -hmm. in the life of like Charlotte, the writer, like, what does it look like for you to like, what is your creative habit or what is it, you know, do you sit at the desk from this time to this time or sort of what does the morning look like? Uh, You know, maybe talk me through like a day or a week or something. I'm so voyeuristically curious about other people's like schedules, right. And like how they do life and do their work. Yeah. That's, um, I share that sort of voyeuristic fascination. Um, and actually one of my deepest, darkest secrets that I don't think I've said publicly ever before. Um, I live in a pretty sort of like bougie part of Seattle. It's a small apartment, but it's, um, it's right next to green Lake, which is a really heavily used park. And so there are probably like eight fun, swanky coffee shops within a eighth of a mile of me. And so, um, Every time I go, I inevitably order like a $6 coconut latte and then see like five people that I know, right? And I never get a goddamn thing done when I go to any of those coffee shops. <laughs> so um, the place I have started working, and this is so shameful that I'm admitting this, it's um, it's like the one holdout seedy dive bar in my neighborhood. And it's called the Little Red Hen. <laughs> and it's like... Um, they open up, they seem to be always open magically. And so it's this like super filthy, dirty dive bar, but you know what? Nobody's ever on the Wi-Fi, So it's super, super fast. (laughs) I never see anybody I know. It's like closer than any of these like bougie coffee shops. Right. And I get unlimited coffee for 85 cents from this like weird middle-aged waiter named Shorty. (laughs) Um, And so it's, it actually, this is so funny because it's underneath um, the Wazelle office. Wazelle is a, I'm sure, you know, it's a women's, it's a company that makes like women's running gear and they're very motivational and healthy. And so sometimes I'm writing and I'm not like day drinking or anything. I'm just writing, like drinking 85 cent coffee in this like super seedy dive bar. And I see like the CEO of Wazelle, like walk by on her way to the super healthy office, you know, drinking kombucha or whatever. (laughs) But, um, I love it because I'm super focused. I don't care if people there see me making my like awkward focusing face at my laptop (laughs) and I never get interrupted. Um, it gets me out of my space and it's, it's really important. (laughs) So so, so you like wake up and go to this diver. Like what does a day look like? Um, yeah. So often I wake up and get some exercise, whether that's yoga or run or a spin class or the gym, you know, um, I have a, I have a Great Dane lab mix named Huckleberry, who's like 140 pounds. And so um, I get him some exercise. Uh, And often I run my errands in the morning um, just to kind of get my wiggles out a little bit. Um, Grocery store or post office or bank or whatever. Um, And then um, I often pitch a couple things before I sit down to write. It kind of helps me like focus my laser beam of attention. Um, you know, pitching a couple editors on new stories can often sort of help me, um, sort of like focus in on my laptop. And then, yeah, I actually often then like pack up and go to this dive bar and drink like bad 85 cent coffee and crank out a couple hours there. Isn't that so ridiculous? No, it's amazing. I love it. I love it. This see this, I mean, this is why I'm so glad I asked that question because everyone has some version of that, right? Maybe it's not a dive bar, maybe not whatever, but once you start to get it, this is why I'm interested, like what you said before that the specifics are what wind up being relatable. Cause no, I don't work from a dive bar, but right. there's like so much in what you just said that it's like, yeah, you figure out the kind of like weird quirky things that work for you. And you know, for me, if I'm going to be working from 
a coffee shop or whatever. First of all, I don't get very good work done. I'm really distractible. Um, right. but I have like the same two songs that I will listen to on like repeat at full blast in my headphones. And that's the only way I can get anything done at a coffee shop. Yeah. Everyone has their own like little thing. And exactly. it's, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's comfort. It's comforting because it's like what I take from what you just shared is lean into whatever works for you, even if it's not like what you think that it should look like. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's so good. Um, I feel like that's a really good place to start to wrap up. And so the way that we end these are um, with some random rapid fire questions, essentially each season, um, the Patreon community, the the folks who support and fund the podcast, we kind of come together to pick seven questions that all eight guests of the season are answering these same random questions. If you're down to answer seven random questions. I'm so ready. <laughs> you're like, okay, <laughs> hit me. Um, okay. So the first question is about money. Mm-hmm. What's one one thing that you purposefully don't spend much money on? And then on the flip side, what's one thing that you feel like is a totally worthwhile splurge for you? Yeah, I try not to eat out a ton or I try to be really deliberate when I do eat out. Um, and damn, will I drop money on professional massage? Oh, same, same, same. <laughs> <laughs> what's one thing that you really love about yourself? Ooh, um, man, I, gosh, let's see. Um, it's crazy that that's so hard to answer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you two answers. <laughs> One, I have really long hair right now and I'm really having a fun time with my mermaid hair. <laughs> it's like totally ratty and going to have to get cut off soon, but that's like a very superficial answer, but it's feeling really fun right now. Um, I think the, the deeper answer is maybe that, um, I love that I, I think I have this career that people have a lot of assumptions about that it's really sexy or really Instagrammable or really glamorous. And I, um, I've really worked hard and I'm really proud to, um, never, never take that for granted and never let it go to my head. I mm-hmm. think I, really, um, I've really worked hard on that. I think. Yeah, that's a really great answer. And I totally relate to that. I'm growing out my mermaid hair right now. And that's totally the way I describe it to you. I'm like, my hair goals are, because when you think yeah. of mermaid hair, it's basically just like the hair that will cover your breasts, right? That's mermaid exactly. hair. So that, and to be able to do like the solid Katniss Everdeen side braid, these are my superficial oh, life goals. So. I know. <laughs> I'm here for that. Um, what was the last shift or decision you made or just like a recent shift or decision that's had a big impact in your life? Yeah. Um, the very real answer to that is my mom, um, is dealing with some big health issues right now. She's got breast cancer. And so I, I'm going to be easing off my guide schedule this year a lot. It's like the universe gave me a very clear message that it's time to be home yeah. for, the next couple months for her. And it's, um, so that has big implications, um, certainly financially, um, and in work, but it's also in some unexpected ways, it's made me powerfully gut check how much of my identity is wrapped up in like being a mountain guide. Um, and I think that's been really, really healthy for me to have to call myself on a couple of like swagger points there. (laughs) No, I I think that's, that's so well said. And obviously, you know, we, you never want that to have to come at the expense, you know, of something that's hard or tragic or something like that. But the, the opportunity to ask yourself any version of the question of who am I without this, whatever this is, I think is super important. Yeah. That's so well said, Nicole. And I will, I will remember the way you said that. Really, <laughs> yeah, really. Um, looking back, what's one decision in your life that felt incredibly hard to make? 
Ooh. Um, hard to make. Um, gosh. <laughs> I wish I had some, I, I'm, man, there's like, it's, it's interesting that this is hard to say. Um, you know, I landed at 30 single, um, and I had always pictured myself being partnered or married at 30. And I looked back at the people that I loved and separated from in my twenties. And I, every single one of those separations was like agony, pure agony. And I think they were all the best. I think I, I think some part of me knew that I needed to like figure out exactly who I was in my twenties. Um, and, and I'm grateful for my, you know, 20 something year old self who was like, this is really hard and scary and I don't know why it's important, but it is. Um, but fuck, that was like pure agony. <laughs> I, I am feeling like at some point we need to have a part two conversation about that. Cause that's a whole realm of things that we didn't get into that. I have many thoughts about. So yeah, yes, totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, if anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies? It can be career related or otherwise, like literally anything that you're just like, yes, I would love to do that. Oh man. Um, I have sort of like incremental goals. You know, I'd love to go to Antarctica. I'd love to, um, climb Everest. I'd love to, um, start a organization to train female guides. Um, man, it's, it's probably telling that I, like, I think of everything as goals and not unreachable dreams. I'm not sure. Um, I would really love the bandwidth to more actively mentor some of the people who have reached out and asked for mentorship. Mm. I think, yeah, um, I, I just reeled in my twenties, not feeling like there were women who were doing what I wanted to do. And that was so hard. Um, and I, my bandwidth is limited and I just can't offer that to the people who reach out now, but I would, I would love to be able to give them more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Figure out what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So the next question is about books, which mm-hmm. two or three books, any kind of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Ooh. ooh. Um, well, we already talked about Toilet Tharp, um, uh, the creative habit. Um, I'm rereading. It's a total hippie, awesome, like sci-fi, awesome, like witch book called the fifth sacred thing. And it's written by an author named Starhawk. Um, <laughs> so, um, I can totally laugh about it and also love the like witchy magic of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's written about, um, essentially post-apocalyptic California and sort of the, what would a eco-friendly community look like post-apocalypse? Um, and <laughs> I love it. And I actually sort of like Doug, I read it in high school and I dug way through my book box to find it in the last couple of weeks. Cause I was feeling like our world needed, um, needed some of that awesome witchy energy right now with all the things that are happening politically. Yeah. Um, again, super cheesy, but fun. Um, and then, man, this is going to sound so <laughs> while we're cheesy. Um, I, I have so many like cooler answers than this, but so I was in, um, I was in the earthquake in Nepal in 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, and I came back really strung out 
and my adrenal system just felt really broken. And I needed a couple of like healthy ways to sort of not be in my own head. And so I started listening to the Harry Potter books on audiobook. <laughs> um, and I started listening to them every night out loud before I would go to sleep. And so I've developed this like Pavlovian response that I turn on one of the Harry Potter, Potter audiobooks and I immediately fall asleep. Um, so more nights than not, I go to sleep listening to like Harry and Hermione on their shenanigans. I mean, I'm an enormous Harry Potter fan and we'll definitely be bringing the audiobooks on the PCT and they're so well narrated and I am here for that. So yes. It's so good, right? I know. It's, yeah. Oh, they're so good. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Ooh, tell the truth, man. It's been kind of the theme of, of this year, you know, in climbing and writing and guiding, um, it is a revolutionary act to tell the truth with kindness and respect. Yeah. I love that. What's the best place for people to find you and say, hi, do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, Instagram is Charlotte Austin, um, at Charlotte Austin. My website is charlotteaustin.com, but I'm kind of in the process of revamping that. So it's a little bit out of date. Um, so Instagram is really the, the gold standard right now. Um, and my, also my contact information is available, both through Instagram and my website. So feel free to reach out directly if that's ever fun. Perfect. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Charlotte, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, by the way, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Heather. Hi, Heather. Hi, Nicole. You ready to answer five random questions? I'm super pumped to answer five random questions. You waited all day to answer five random (laughs) questions. (laughs) Um, My favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh, I am totally obsessed with not checking my email on my phone, which I think I sent you in a message. Um, It has been a huge game changer for me. Yeah, I go through phases with that. It's it's funny, like hearing you say that, I'm like, hmm, maybe it's time for me to take email off my phone again whenever I <laughs> I get like I feel like it's so awesome when I'm not doing it. And then I always add it back on when I'm traveling. Um, because then it actually is kind of useful, but then I forget to, or am resistant to taking it back off. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm awaiting the day where like I break the streak. But right now I'm super proud of myself for like I think we're going on almost three weeks. And I have checked it once or twice out of necessity to like send someone something that I was running late or something and I didn't have their number, but I was like, okay, no more of that. Yeah. Take it off. Oh yeah. I literally have to delete the Gmail app from my phone. And then just for whatever reason, it winds up going back on the phone and it's a whole thing. <laughs> These Hello, first word problems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's something that feels frustrating for you right now? Like one particular thing or area of your life that you're currently finding challenging? Oh, um, well, we have a newborn in the house, well, four month old and just started childcare. And I've had this conversation with my husband, so he won't be shocked by this, but I feel frustrated that it is often the women's salary that's supposed to like compensate for childcare. And I work for myself and I do a lot of freelancing and one-on-one coaching stuff. So 
I get stressed about, you know, am I like making enough to compensate for what we're paying? And I'm frustrated just by like the assumption that it has to be just on me. So we're working through that. And it's not like coming from him. It's like kind of a societal thing. But, you know, being in this position, I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, that's a super honest answer. I love that you shared that. What's one thing that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into or something that a lot of people seem to prioritize that you just don't really care? Interesting. Um, This might sound weird, but I feel like Snapchat is just something I can't get into. (laughs) It doesn't sound weird at all. I'm not sure that people prioritize it, but um, a lot of people around me use it. And I just noticed someone I was with over the weekend was kind of using it nonstop. And I was like, yeah, I just, I don't understand. I can't get into this. Yeah. I have a very small bandwidth for the social media that I enjoy using and can handle. And it's basically like Instagram lightly and that's it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What would you say is your secret weapon in your healthiest relationship? Ooh, I like to think that I'm a pretty good judge of like people's personality traits and tendencies because I'm sort of obsessed with that. Um, I'm a middle child, so I feel like I have two vantage points of like how people develop and what that means for them. Um, So in my relationships, I think I do pretty well with um, kind of meshing my personality traits with someone else's and learning how we can like jive together. Yeah, totally. And the last question, what's one specific thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? Do I have to just give one answer? <laughs> no, you can give as many answers as you want. Oh, um, I think like the process behind things, that's something I'm kind of working through right now in my conversations with people. Like, I feel like we're so quick to say, I did this and then this and then this happened. And like, voila, it was magic. But there's so many like nitty gritty details that go into that, that we just brush over maybe for the sake of brevity and conversation, but like, that's what I'm most interested in. Yeah, definitely. Like actually, especially if those things aren't like a linear path. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Which, what is right. You know? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible. Since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I am very grateful. And I would love for you to share first why you decided to support the show. And then, um, what's been your favorite thing about being in our little community? I was happy to support the show because I, as I mentioned, also have a podcast and I feel like there's so much work that goes into it and um, kind of like blogs and I guess a lot of things on the internet, people expect kind of work to be free. But if you're a creator of any type, you know that nothing comes free and there's a lot of time and energy that goes into producing things. And so I feel like if I really love something and I have the opportunity to support it, then I want to take advantage of that. Yeah, that's really well said. Thanks. And have you had a favorite thing um, about the little Patreon community? I love the newsletters and I just got the book club thing. So I'm excited for more of those because I'm always trying to figure out the next good read and I'm not great about like staying on top of book recommendations elsewhere. So (laughs) I'm excited for that. Oh, that's fun. That's good. I hope that you join it. Yeah. It's been really a nice way for me to prioritize choosing a wider range of books and think a little bit more thoughtfully about, you know, who are these authors? What are these topics? You know, what would, Mm -hmm. what's something that maybe people wouldn't pick up on their own, you know, that type of thing. So yeah, that's, it's a fun thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then lastly, can you share where you live and then maybe a website or social media link? Um, if people want to reach out to 
Yeah, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, technically in Arlington. And on social media, I am at Heather DCRD. Um, and I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. I've done a lot of things on the internet. So if you find me there, you'll find lots of other things. Yeah, that's relatable. I've also done a lot of things on the internet. <laughs> right? um, so thanks so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be so much fun. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 